This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Eve Ewing, and I am a Chicago native, but I am currently, for the second year, living in Boston, but I definitely think of myself as a Chicago person through and through. I'm a writer, and I am an educator. I was a Chicago public school teacher, taught middle school, and right now I am a doctoral student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I also kind of where my heart is, is I am one of the organizers for Louder Than a Bomb, Massachusetts. I also like to draw and I am not good at it, but I continue to do so. song I chose to talk about today was really was really tough but I decided I felt like I had to start with I left my wallet in El Segundo by a tribe called Quest my brother Matt when he was in middle school got really into skate culture so he would spend all the time like watching these skate videos and they always had this like really amazing old school hip hop underground hip hop punk music and you know at the time I was like I guess maybe 14, and I was sort of in my mid to late 90s rock band sort of groove, which was cool, you know, like a lot of like Smashing Pumpkins and like Weezer <laughs> and stuff like that. But that was the first time I, I really heard hip-hop in a way that just felt so lively. Like these sort of like old school story tracks that are just like people telling stories have like a, a little bit of a special place in my heart. People don't really make songs like that anymore. The song is so earnest and, and genuine and it's just cool and makes me think about being young and like having stupid adventures with your friends and like going on road trips, just goofy. It's like a really goofy song. I consider myself sort of a, a goofy person. The song in general really just makes me laugh and makes me smile like every time. And I always find myself singing along with the whole song as though I too had been like, <laughs> you know, the fifth member of this, you know, sort of wild escapade or adventure. It has like one of my favorite hip hop lyrics <laughs> of all time because, you know, Tip says, anyway, a gas station we pass, we got gas. 
and went on to get grub. It was a nice little pub in the middle of nowhere. Anywhere would have been better. I ordered enchiladas and I ate them. Ali had the fruit punch. And, and in the video, there's this absurd moment when that happens where Ali is handed this giant can that says like fruit punch on it. It's like totally ridiculous. Anyway, a gas station we passed. We got gas. They went on to get grub. It was a nice little pump in the middle of nowhere. Anywhere would have been better. I ordered enchiladas and I ate them. Ali had the fruit punch. When we finished, we thought for ways to get back. I had a hunch. Ali said, pay for lunch. So I did it. Pulled out the wallet and I saw this wicked, beautiful lady. She was a waitress there. Put the wallet down and stared and stared. To put me back into reality. Here, shot. Yo, tip, man, you got what you need. It's just so very, um, I'm really resisting using the term, like, innocent, because that's definitely not the case. But I guess earnest. I don't mean earnest in the sense of being unsophisticated. I mean earnest in the sense of being unconcerned with, like, performing a certain facade that I think in the subsequent decade came this like shell around hip-hop practice where it becomes very hard to differentiate who somebody is and then who they're performing themselves as which is fine I think that's like part of the nature of arts endemic to arts and I'm not trying to say that like there wasn't a performative aspect or that they weren't making artistic choices to represent themselves a, a certain way but it just feels more like yeah like this is like chill music for your friends I left my wallet in El Segundo I grew up in Chicago, went to Chicago public schools. My mom kind of fought hard to get me into a magnet elementary school that was that was actually really diverse. As a former CPS faculty member, I recognized that going to a school that was as diverse as this one was is really pretty rare in the district. I grew up in Logan Square. I really feel really deep roots with the neighborhood. It's changing a lot, but I love going back there and it just feels like home to me. One thing I sort of wear as a badge of pride that's pretty rare for Chicagoans is I have like a north side, south side love because I went to the University of Chicago for college. So I ended up moving to Hyde Park after pretty much never being south of like, never being south of division like most of my life. And then after college taught middle school in Bronzeville. I guess I'd better offer you we real cool. Most young people know me only by that point. I don't mean that I dislike it, but I would prefer it if the textbook compilers and the anthologists would assume that I've written a few other poems. Uh, this poem has been banned here and there because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference. That was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. But I was thinking of music. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we learn light, we strike straight, we sing sin, we then gin, we jazz, June, we 
Chicago history is really important to me, and one of like the most important people ever to live, as far as my own little universe is concerned, was Gwendolyn Brooks. She's a poet who wrote A Street in Bronzeville, like one of her seminal works, and I got really into her work when I was in college and uh, wrote my BA thesis on her and did a lot of research on her. I never got a chance to meet her before she passed away, but I've always just felt like deeply connected to her and then deeply connected to the city through her. She was someone who had a lot of sort of canonical recognition, right? Cause she, she won a Pulitzer Prize, like she was the poet laureate, but she never severed her ties to community and always saw poetry as a means of making other people feel like they could have their voices heard and never sacrifice finding a middle ground between vision, activism, and art. And I've really tried to make that one of the guideposts of, of my life and my work. I love school, I've always loved school, but I went through kind of a period of disenchantment and depression wherein I often was not paying attention in class. I guess specifically my sophomore year my mom got really sick and I was really sort of, that was really hard for me to work through and I never really like talked about it with anybody or really worked through it with anybody so I, I spent a lot of time like kind of just being a misanthrope in school. Okay, just keep in mind that I eventually became an English teacher and like I have an honors degree in English from the University of Chicago like but that almost didn't happen because like I got a D in Miss Maxwell's English class like it's because I just straight up didn't work like I have this memory of falling asleep in her class I fell asleep on a copy of the sound and the fury so I woke up and I had this like line in the middle of my forehead and I would just do horrible obnoxious things like I I went to the party store and I bought an air horn and I would sound the air horn in the middle of class like while people were talking. I went through a period where I just only ate like Cocoa Krispies and so I would I bought like a big box of Cocoa Krispies and I would bring them to school and eat them in class or like I would bring action figures and like set them up on my desk. In retrospect I always look back at that and I'm like why was no one like what's going on you know with this kid and I think it's because I was I think it's because I was smart that people were like uh you know she'll work it out or whatever and I went to a very elite high school so I don't know if people just were not prepared to deal with my like obnoxious behavior or I'd like to take the optimistic route and believe it's because people really loved me and wanted to just give me space to work through what I was working through. So I would like to believe, not that the adults in my life were just utterly negligent, I would prefer to believe that people were just letting me chill, but like, yo, if a kid brought an air horn to my class, like, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even imagine. intersection of Belmont and Clark I went to elementary school about like I guess six or seven blocks away from there and so like I was very familiar with the area and it was like my friends and I would go there we would go to Reckless Records and 
you know, when I was 15, I might spend a Saturday by myself getting on the bus or getting on the train and going to Reckless, either in Wicker Park or in Lakeview, and I would actually, like, go to a bin of CDs and flip through them and just look at them. This looks good. I'm going to buy it. You know, it's not like I would go on Pitchfork or like Spotify or like social music sharing at the time meant like go to the record store and ask someone at the record store what you should buy or listen to what your friends were listening to. eclectic taste in music now, but I always feel like I'm actually trying to just recapture the eclecticism that I really harbored when I was like a teenager because I was a hardcore emo kid, like I was super emo and into emo culture. I guess now that's sort of just like a buzzword for like sad person in general, but you know, back when emo was like a genre of music, you know, I was an emo kid, but then I was also listening to this like old school hip hop, but I was also super into like Ella Fitzgerald, and I was really into big band music. Dick Buckley on WBEZ when he had his Sunday jazz show, I feel like I was probably like the youngest consistent listener of that show from like 1999 to 2003. And then at the same time, I was really into like electronic music that was hot at the time. I was a huge Daft Punk fan. And, and then I was also like kind of a nerdy kid that loved Japanese things. So I would listen to like Chibo Mato. You could open up my computer and find like Alkaline Trio and like Tribe Called Quest, and like Louis Armstrong, and you know, like all these sort of just miscellaneous things. I just feel like I had this openness to just listening to whatever was good. I still have that, but I always feel like I'm trying to recapture the, just the sense of discovery that was, that was so natural at the time. Spread your wings 
In 2001, I started getting involved with YCA, with Young Chicago Authors. For the first time, I was around other people my age, or in more cases, four or five years older than me, as well as sort of a, a generation of mentors that were like 10 years older than me that were teaching artists who had just like deep hip-hop knowledge. And where respect for underground hip-hop and kind of old-school hip-hop was just part and parcel of the culture. It was just something people talked about and took for granted all the time. And it was like really exciting and cool to be part of that. And there were just a lot of people that I really looked up to who had this hip hop ethos that was so different from what was sort of being valorized in the mainstream at the time. But at the same time, having like a supportive community of really good people that really provided some some mentorship. There were all these other people my age and people older than me that like cared about what they were doing and like wrote for fun and read books for fun. I was like, this is everything I've ever dreamed of. YCA. It was an apartment on division above what is now small bar next to what used to be a vacant lot and now is a building. And you would walk up this really rickety flight of stairs and open the door and you'd be in an apartment. But And it looked like a regular Chicago apartment, but it would be full of like kids and books. A ceiling fan that was so dusty, everyone was always afraid to turn it on. And this like sagging yellow couch and a conference table and like nothing in the cabinets. To me, it felt like a treehouse or a clubhouse. Growing up as a kid in the city, you see on TV or in books, like, the social spaces that I guess you're supposed to gather in, like, you're supposed to go to the mall, or you're supposed to, like, walk to your friend's house. And I was like, I live in the city. None of my friends live within walking distance of me. So for me, it was like YCA was this magical alternate world. Like, when you're a kid, you have very restricted models for what you get to be when you grow up. And I never questioned that being an artist and an activist was not like a viable career option for life because I had real life models of people who did it. and left my wallet sort of speaks to my life in adolescence the next song is more my life in young adulthood slash like late adolescence and that's uh, Paper Planes by M.I.A. there's like a lot of stuff that's problematic about M.I.A. since the New York Times article came out that sort of highlights that she has a very complicated relationship with global capitalism I feel like that has marred her image a little bit but that being said I still think she's like an incredibly fly person 
She has like a transnational dopeness. She has amazing style. I think she really brings a global consciousness to hip hop. Like she's just hardcore. She performed at the Grammys when she was like mega pregnant. <laughs> like I feel like MIA is just a G. It was hard for me to pick this song, but it's sort of representative of a larger category of, for me, my life soundtrack of women on the grind, I guess I would call it. Women on the hustle, like women making it happen. I work super, super, super hard. I love my work. My boyfriend says I talk about my work like it's a person. I'm really privileged to be able to practice things that are reflective of my political and artistic beliefs on a day-to-day -day basis, but sometimes I need that moment, like, just get it done. As a feminist, I feel like a lot of the work that women do on a day-to-day -day basis is not honored as like hardcore work. My mom is one of my biggest role models. She raised me and my brother pretty much solo for the most part, and she also works super, super hard, stays up till 3 a.m. like working on projects. She always did work that spoke to her conscience, but I also see the ways in which doing things like organizing a rally or like getting food for a meeting. In activism or organizing circles, a lot of things that historically women have done to kind of actually make things happen, like make sure people are where they're supposed to be at the time they're supposed to be there and get things done, that kind of labor is not always honored. I just listen to female MCs and female musicians that are kind of honoring what it means to just be like a woman on the hustle in a man's world. Sometimes that hustle is physically laborious, other times that hustle is, inter is intellectual, other times that hustle is emotional. For example, when I was a Chicago public school teacher, I used to listen to Paper Planes when I was going to work at like 7 a.m. I guess some other like songs in that category for me, definitely Missy Elliott, sometimes I'll listen to like Work It or something like that to really get myself amped up about something I'm doing. Erica Badu serves the same purpose for me. Just like these women that are just like, yo, I'm good at what I do and I'm gonna do it and everyone else shut up and get out of the way. And like sometimes that's what you need at seven in the morning.
it's a really good question whether or not the backlash from that article was more harsh because she is a woman or because she's a brown woman. And I would say, like, look, everybody is complicit in, like, destructive systems of global capitalism. Everybody. Like, no matter how hardcore you are. Like, when there's a protest in Brooklyn, people are able to document that and make it happen because of Twitter and because of Facebook and because of Apple. Our revolutionary work in the contemporary era is very much facilitated by our complicity in capitalism. That is what it is. I feel like that's something that everybody needs to examine in their own life and examine what you're comfortable with and what the limits of your complicity need to be. I'm not saying that she should have been above criticism for that. I just think it's a little bit of a low blow to be like, yeah, you ate truffle fries, like, you're not down. And I think that that's really easy for a New York Times reporter to be, like, the arbiter of what it means to be truly down with the movement or whatever. And I'm not saying the MIA wasn't slightly trifling, but, like, I think that, that there's sort of an inherent hypocrisy in just leveling those criticisms without acknowledging the ways in which all of us make complicated decisions about the lives we lead that sometimes seem self-contradictory and that are not easy. Yeah, I do think that perhaps the backlash would have been different otherwise. Maybe people were looking for an opportunity to show that that's somehow disingenuous. Like, I think a lot of times if you're somebody that tries to live your life politically, people are looking for opportunities to show that you're, like, not real. And I think that's really unfortunate in political movements or, like, in countercultural movements in general, just that people want to outdo each other or tear each other down. And it becomes like a sort of status symbol of how, how down you are. And I also know that I feel like I'm down with the struggle. And I also really love truffle fries. <laughs> and I think that there's a complicated dynamic of people who themselves are in positions of power deciding for others what it means to be truly political. And like, I think that's an especially complicated dynamic when it's white people criticizing people of color for essentially, like, not being political enough or something. I think any time we start sort of trying to determine who is a good activist or who is a good radical and who's not, it becomes problematic. I think that everybody has the right and the imperative to sort of pursue their own radical path in the way that seems best to them and fight the battles that make the most sense to them. No one on the corner has swagger like us is like when the us in question might be like street youths in Southeast Asia or might be like dudes selling like halal meat on the corner in New York or like dudes selling socks on like uh, Garfield. I feel like there's a little bit of an of an irony or uh, self-conscious like self-aggrandizing in that line where it's like, yeah, y'all are talking about being on the corner, like being thugs, but like this dude is on the corner selling socks. And I feel like the hustle is just really key to sort of countercultural practice where we're all out here like trying to make it in whatever way we see fit while at the same time 
being true to our principles. I always feel a little bit silly that there's like a bizarre affiliation I feel with some of these lyrics. When Missy Elliott says like, girls, girls, get that cash if it's nine to five or shaking your ass, like, or whatever it is you're doing to make money, you know, and I would be feeling that song in terms of just talking about like self-production. And maybe the work that I was doing at the time was I was babysitting and like trying to pay my way through college, you know, or I was like filing papers or whatever it was doing. That was my day to day work to try to get things done. Like I worked at a call center. I was a, a hostess in a restaurant, the 6 p.m. to midnight shift. You know, I just did whatever I could do to make it happen. And so I always appreciate women who speak to that. Girls, get that cash. Uh, if it's not a five or shaking your ass, uh, ain't no shame, ladies, do your thing. Uh, Just make sure you ahead of the game. Uh, Just cause I got a lot of fame, super. Prince couldn't get me, change my name, Papa. Puta can't tell you, slave again, no sir. Picture black saying, oh, yes, I'm my sir. Picture little Kim dating a pastor. Minute man, big red can outlast ya. Who is the best? I don't have to ask ya. When I come out, you won't even matter. Uh, Why you act dumb like this, duh? Say so you act dumb like uh, duh. As the drummer boy go brr pum 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 Give you some 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 of this cinnabon Around the time that the song came out I feel like I was starting to think about the merits of adopting a feminist orientation as like a means into leadership and the ways in which women have a facility with forms of leadership that are not always valued in broader society. Recognizing in life that like you can choose to be collaborative and not competitive, or you can choose to have like lateral decision-making structures, or you can choose to just cooperate in how you do your work, and that those are valid forms of leadership. And I think in college, I mean, both in terms of my lived examples and in terms of my intellectual examples, I was really grateful just to encounter a lot of intense feminist thought for the first time. My advisor in college was a, a professor named Jackie Goldsby. It was this black woman professor, and she wrote her name on the board. She wrote Professor Goldsby, like, don't call me Jackie. Or Sitting in that classroom and looking up and seeing this woman whose face looked like my face, who was incredibly serious and rigorous and hardcore and like not to be effed with, especially at a place like University of Chicago, the more mean and tough a professor is, it's like the more they're valorized. And so it meant a lot to me to see a black woman that I could look up to within that same framework. Like it's not a game in this class. You better come here having read everything and being ready to talk about it. She was a, a living model for me. And then at the same time, I got really into this tradition of black women writers from like the mid 20th century that were just, I mean, just speaking truth. And it made me feel for the first time like there was a really robust intersection between my intellectual life and my gender and my race in a way that was so deeply empowering to not feel like you have to be exceptional for being a black woman who wants to do this work, but rather that you are the latest in a profound lineage of black women doing this work.
being in a, a predominantly white institution, I constantly, constantly, constantly being pulled into situations where I had to discuss race, negotiate race, explain race, talk about race, and like everybody resists being a native informant, but at the same time, I took up race and theories around race and identity and politics as the object of my inquiry. That's what I do. Like, that's what I study. And it means that I find myself in positions a lot where I'm just talking about those things with other people. In college, I kind of had to bring my A game. Being in a university where you might be sitting across the breakfast table from like a really conservative white person who's like, gender's real. There are men and there are women. Or like, slavery was a long time ago, or like, I don't see color, and actually having to account for those things. And yes, that's incredibly draining and horrible and like a burden that I don't always like to bear. But at the same time, whether I liked it or not, when I was in college, I just had to figure that out super quick. How do you navigate that situation in a way that does whatever you feel is right to do at that moment and maintains your own sanity? And like, maybe educates somebody and maybe doesn't maybe maybe in that moment the win is to get out and get away and not subject yourself to violence and trauma or maybe the win is to change somebody's mind or maybe the win is to like plant a seed for them but it just means that i got a lot of practice in talking about difficult subjects with difficult people <laughs> Big shit, not loving obscurity. Keep it real and rap. Don't mess with maturity. People get older, mountain boulders. When rend erosion starts to mess with your back and shoulder, keep on with the keep on, keep on. The last song I chose is a song I don't have a long history with. It's an album that just came out. An artist that is not new but new to me. Uh, the song is Day by Day by Serengeti. I'm really feeling this song right now. I'm really feeling this whole album right now. The artist is David Cohn. He's a Chicago native. I had to get at least one Chicago MC <laughs> out there today. And for me, the song speaks to like being a young adult and growing up and sort of figuring things out and examining the relationships in your life that you hold dear and holding close some relationships that maybe you haven't appreciated enough and then redefining some other relationships and forming new ones and moving across the country and starting and ending jobs and reflecting, being introspective. To me, the song just speaks to all those things. Keep on, keep on, shitty shit to sleep on. Thorny vines and glasses to pass time. Lines lost luster, feeling like a buster. Few days pass by, start to regain the luster. It just keeps up and down, like everything face facts. Don't get too excited and don't get a heart attack. In the history of my adolescence and young adulthood, I have a lot of like emotional unwellness and instability and illness that I really struggled with a little bit at the end of high school and then in college where I was I was not totally well mentally or emotionally and it's not really something that most people know. It's something that I, I keep pretty private. I don't really share those narratives with anybody. If I'm in a close love relationship with someone, like my boyfriend knows these things, my parents a little bit, 
that's pretty much it. Like, a couple of my friends from college, I just don't really, like, talk about these things with people. And I've always admired people that are willing to sort of put their own inner struggles, like, put them on blast. Because it's to the benefit of everybody. And so this song is, like, really depressing, but I guess when I heard it, it just really spoke to me. As someone who now... I feel like I've been really healthy for the most part for the last few years and like I have my ups and downs but have really just tried to be in a place of like of health of mental and emotional health and uh, like working actively to make that so uh, and to take care of myself and to reach out to people who love me and can support me when I can't take care of myself. This is what he intended with it, but for me, it just spoke to, like, kind of days when just, like, leaving the house is a is a major triumph. <laughs> I remember one time when I was, like, I guess maybe, like, 20 or 21, I was going through a really hard time, and I called my mom, and I was, like, really sort of beating myself up or feeling like I had failed at something, and she said, like, well, did you get up? Are you out of the house? And I said, yeah. She's like, you're dressed, and you left the house. I was like, yeah. She's like, well... You have to give yourself credit for that much. You got dressed and you left the house today. And some of that, that is half the battle much of the time. And I really appreciated having that acknowledgement. So I really appreciated times when people in my life were willing to say, like, that's okay and we're here for you anyway. But I recognize I put a lot of limitations on myself because I don't like talking to, the, to people about these things. And I feel very private and secretive about it. So I think art can sometimes just fill that role. That not being pig shit, not loving obscurity, keep it real and rap, don't mess with maturity. People get older, mountain boulders. When Rin Wolves starts to mess with your back and shoulder, keep on with the keep on, keep on, keep on. Shitty shit to sleep on. Thorny vines and glasses to pass time. Lines lost luster, feeling like a buster. A few days pass by, start to regain the luster. Just keeps up and down. Bitch. Everything face facts. Don't get a heart attack. Jack. When you're an adolescent and you feel like things aren't going your way, you get to just like act crazy. When I was in high school, I would express those things by being really destructive. And when I got to college, I would express those feelings by like on my 20th birthday, I was super upset and depressed. I was really mean to all my friends and I, and I like refused to talk to anybody. And, you know, my best friend was like, I'm here. And whenever you decide to remember that, like everything you're saying about yourself is not true, come over and we'll play video games. And in the meantime, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm just going to wait on you to, to figure yourself out. You know, at different stages in life, it's like you work those things out as best you can. But at this point, I'm like, yo, you're an adult, <laughs> like suck it up, deal with it. Don't let your own emotional or mental difficulties be an excuse for you to, to treat other people with disregard or to be selfish or to be a jerk. Take care of yourself. Take care of the people in your life and like do what you have to do. 
The singing in the song is like, um, so tired. It's like he's just barely eking it out just to even like lay down this song. But in the end, like, it's done and it's a great piece of work. And that, that's how it goes sometimes. Appreciate when the lust is back. Notice when it's gone and deal. Different sides like the colors of that wheel. There's this line in the song where he says, appreciate when the luster's back, notice when it's gone, and deal. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it does not. <laughs> when it goes well, be really, really grateful because it is not guaranteed. And when it's not going well, suck it up and figure out what you need to do to move forward. And at the end of the track, he just repeats like, it's cured. It's perfect. It's fine. It's fine. It's great. It's cool. It's great. It's great. That really spoke to me hearing in my own voice all the times I've said those things to myself, all the times I've said those things to people around me who were concerned for my welfare. Like if you say it's great enough times, it's going to be great. If you say it's cured enough times, it's going to be cured. And I think that there's like a cynicism to that because it's like, I think usually when people say stuff like it's fine, it's fine, it's supposed to represent well, y'all think it's fine, but it's really not fine at all. And that's real. But at the same time, I really do believe that we define ourselves on a daily basis and we define our choices. And I, I have to believe that I can take the reins of my life and live it the way I want to. And so I, I do think that there's something to be said for like mantras and telling yourself things are fine when they're not fine and telling yourself things are fine to make them fine. In all honesty, there are days when I'm really exhausted and, and my alarm goes off and the first word I say for the day is like, damn, ah, uh, damn, like, I'm awake, <laughs> like, why? And you know, as soon as you wake up, all the things that you have to do flash through your head and all the ways in which you feel utterly unprepared to do them flash through your head. And I very often begin days that way and I very rarely end them that way. When I was a teacher, there are days when I would wake up in the worst mood, the worst mood, feeling totally physically and emotionally incapable of anything. And like, when you get to school, the first kid that like makes a cheesy joke and like smiles at you, or the first kid that like, you know, has new glasses, or the first kid that gives you a drawing that they made for you, like, that's it, like, it's over. And as a teacher, I did not have space to be depressed or anxious because people needed me every day. People that I loved needed me and relied on me to take care of them. And I think that's why that work means so much to me. And even now, I think for a lot of people who deal with depression or anxiety, the demands that other people place on them can be really burdensome. And that's definitely true for me as well. But I also feel like that's what saves me much of the time because there are days when I get up and I'm just like 
feeling utterly incapable of facing the world and then somebody just reminds me in some small way like how loved and blessed I am I think that most of the time I'm a really joyful grateful person I try to just like dwell in gratitude as much as I can and maybe that's why feelings that are not so good are something that I tend to keep to myself because in the end, it's like, why let that define you when like your life is great? <laughs> Just by virtue of you being alive. Other people will love you, but you have to decide what you want for yourself and you have to be committed to that independently. Hip-hop matters because it's such a venue for public discourse and discussion that otherwise would not happen. Hip-hop is a means for people to express political viewpoints, personal orientations, questions, social problems, life issues, states of being, inner states, that otherwise would just not necessarily be made public. And there's something so vicious in putting your deepest self, whether that deepest self is hanging out with your friends, you know, like in Left My Wallet in El Segundo, or being a woman who's working really hard as in Paper Planes, or being like kind of a sad dude <laughs> who's feeling like bummed out in the middle of his life, uh, like in Day by Day. Whatever it is that your inner state is, you can like put that in music and put it out there and people are going to take it or leave it and they're going to fight over it and they're going to like it or not like it and they're going to diss it or they're going to love it. But it's out there and I feel like that just makes us better. Like it makes the world richer that we have a means for discussing things like feminism or things like mental illness or like emotional challenges or things like <laughs> leaving your wallet in a town, memories of your young adulthood or just having adventures like where we can put that out there. Yeah.